This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Ken Charles, sitting in for Mike Simpson. And you look nothing like Mike Simpson. Um, and that's lucky for him. <laughs> We're here as we are all the time. Well, not Ken and I, but Mike and I, but we're here all the time to talk about the global coronavirus pandemic. Sweden has been an outlier of sorts. Man, have they been an outlier when it comes to the developed world's response to the virus outbreak. There's no formal lockdown or major shutdowns at all. Way different than what we did here in the United States. At first, it looked like things were fine. Then there was a spike and it looked really bad. How are they now? We'll take a deep dive into the curious case of Sweden. And, you know, uh, Sweden has taken uh, a lot of heat uh, because when they didn't do the lockdown, a lot of people all over said, yo, you know, it's going to lead to a lot of, you know, deaths. And, all that. and it did. But now it seems like the opposite is happening. And it's a real mystery. It's It looked like they didn't have a plan. Yeah. But in reality, not only did they have a plan. But we'll find out. It seems like it's working. Now, by the way, if you happen to be wondering how quickly the virus can spread in certain settings, all you have to do is look at a cruise ship that was months ago hit with a very big outbreak. And we'll explain that in a lot more detail later in this podcast. I got to tell you, I'm stunned that people are still getting on cruise ships. Well, I I mean, would you? If it needs a salad bar or, or if it needs a sneeze guard, no. I, I wouldn't Anything go, with a yeah. sneeze guard, you will not see me on. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to hear from the cruise ship industry, but I wouldn't go on one. Not yet. Yeah. I mean, listen, I love going on cruises. I've been on some beautiful cruises. I'm not ready to cruise. I'm not ready to fly. I'm barely ready to drive with my wife. I'm afraid to even get in my car. <laughs> so. You and me both. Health health experts have said social distancing is one of the big keys to slowing the spread of the virus. Now there's proof in the form of a new study. And, you know, we may be, it, it may be fun to listen to, but what's not fun is spending too much time scrolling through bad news about the virus. I do that. All the time. But of course we have to. Yeah. But most people listening to this, they can tune it out. Don't tune out the podcast, but you could tune out the bad news. But it's listen, it's true. If you go on anybody's Facebook feed, if you go on anybody's Twitter feed, it's pictures of their dogs and it's terrible news. Right. There's no in between anymore. We will look into how it is impacting uh, people's mental health. And by that, I mean all this bad news. Well, and speaking of bad news, remember Buddy... You know, he was the German Shepherd in New York City that was the first dog in the country to get the virus. Well, but he didn't make it, but his death might serve as a cautionary tale. I got to tell you, I love my dog. I'm a dog lover. This story kills me. Because it it involves the the dog. Yeah. It's like, you know, there's 151,000 United States citizens who have died, and it's tragic, and it should have been avoided, but the one dog hurts me worse. (laughs) Well, now, let's get back to Sweden. Uh, cases and deaths in Sweden, they are falling rather rapidly. Dr. Andrew Asman is an infectious disease epidemiologist over at Johns Hopkins University. Now, he's working, as it turns out, out of Switzerland, studying all the different countries' responses, you know, to to COVID-19. Earlier, he talked with uh, Chris Seedens and myself about what is really happening in Sweden. I'm not sure we can call this a success. Uh, I think w- what they did do is they decided to, as you said, not lock down. They decided to um, have a lot of intense public health messaging and 
people in Sweden tend to listen to rules and recommendations. So I think people in Sweden um, heeded some of the advice, and actually it's quite clear that they reduced their social interactions during this time period. Um, But they experienced a lot of deaths. Uh, They're in the top, I don't know what it is today, but top certainly within the top 10 death rates in the world. Um, But it's true over the past couple of weeks, we've seen a decrease in cases um, without any decrease in testing or anything like that. But it's quite early to to think that that's a success. Um, It is still summer in in Sweden. And in summertime, particularly July and August, people go to their summer, summer homes far away from everyone. And there's kind of this inherent social distancing going on. And so I, I think that there's a lot less mixing. And so seeing decreases right now is not surprising. I think we'll, we'll wait. I would re- reserve judgment for the, the months to come. The debate in Sweden really illustrates just how much is still unknown about this pandemic. Have we learned anything about so-called herd immunity from the Sweden situation? I don't think so. I mean, I think if we, if we continue to see this go down and we don't see a resurgence, Perhaps, but what we've seen from serological studies where they look at antibodies and blood is that um, in Sweden, we don't see things much different than the rest of Europe. So we, we don't see like half of the population that's been infected or some very high proportion. So I don't think um, if, if Sweden continues to go down and the rest of Europe goes up, it, it would be very perplexing. And I'm not I'm not so sure what we would learn about herd immunity, though. Well, I, I know, um, I remember reading, uh, I don't know, a week or two ago somewhere, uh, about, I guess it's a very controversial notion that perhaps for this virus, uh, you don't need, I think what the normally accepted herd immunity figure is what, about 60, 65, 70% of a population, is that it? Something like that, maybe a little higher. Maybe yeah. a little higher. I mean, is there a possibility, for whatever reason, that you don't need to reach that level for this particular virus? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this herd immunity threshold is a very theoretical threshold that is based on the theory that people are randomly bumping into each other. It, it really comes from from physics and chemistry and thinking about molecules kind of bumping into each other at random. And people don't bump into each other at random. And we don't have infectious contacts at random. And so some of the newer work uh, that you're alluding to has kind of shown, well, if, you know, if there's a lot of, uh, if a lot of infections happen through these, what we call super spreading events, where one person uh, perhaps is in a nightclub and infects 50 people, whereas most people don't infect anyone else, um, that sort of dynamics can lead to a situation where if you vaccinate the right people, or if you have immunity in the right people, a small portion of people, you could actually have protection in the population. Um, So, yeah, it's it's definitely possible. Dr. Andrew Asman, infectious disease epidemiologist, Johns Hopkins University. He's working out of Switzerland, studying how different countries respond to COVID-19. Dr. Asman, thank you. The Diamond Princess cruise ship 
served as a kind of a learning tool for how this virus spreads. One infected passenger boarded the ship in January, and then it was about a month uh, later when more than 700 passengers, and you remember this, Ken, 700 passengers got sick, and it turns out that this serves as a really big warning sign for everyday settings like indoor restaurants, bars, and, you know, even gyms. This happened back in January before we really knew what we knew now. Now that we do know what we know, I got to tell you, you're not going to see me in a bar or a restaurant. And even before COVID, you didn't see me in a gym. (laughs) You know, Charles, you and and Chris Seedens talked to Dr. Joseph Allen, who's the director of the Healthy Buildings Program at Harvard's Chan School of Public Health. He was co-author of the Diamond Princess study and explains what we can learn from the outbreak on that ship. The canary in a coal mine, it it caught our attention rightfully early on in this pandemic and and should have been an early warning of just how easily this virus spreads. If you recall, there were several thousand people on the cruise ship and almost 20 percent of them got infected. That was even after a lockdown. So what we did with our study really was to use that as a a really a, a perfect experiment. Unfortunately, it was an experiment in a bottle with everything so controlled and so well defined. We could really understand how this virus is transmitted and start to quantify it for the first time with some depth. And what we learned is this, uh, airborne transmission, so longer range airborne transmission, I mean around a room, uh, is is contributing a significant portion of the spread of this virus. Now, this is just starting to get some attention. Uh, I'm one of the 239 scientists who wrote a letter to the WHO a couple weeks ago. This made headlines that airborne transmission is happening despite CDC, WHO being reluctant to acknowledge it's happening. This new study shows it's happening. It makes up a big part of the spread, and it has obvious implications for offices, schools, and every other setting we spend our time indoors in. Okay, so let's talk about what that translates to in terms of what offices and schools and buildings need to do. As you know, most modern buildings, you can't open windows, and that was designed years ago to to be more energy efficient. So you can't open the window unless you want to throw a chair through it. So what are we supposed to do? Yeah, it's a good question. So first, keep doing the controls that we know are working. Hand washing, absolutely wear masks. That helps with all forms of transmission as well. Um, and social distancing is good. The one that we need to do more of and fewer people pay attention to is bringing in more fresh outdoor air or bringing in ventilation. So if you do have operable windows, you open them up, facilitate the movement of air coming in, say, with the fan in the window. If you're in a building that has air conditioning or HVAC system, mechanical system, you want to talk to the building owner and get more fresh outdoor air coming in through that system. Any air that's recirculated must go through a MERV 13 filter or better, MERV. Usually they use a MERV 8. You want a MERV 13. And you could think about supplementing that in schools, homes, office with a portable air cleaner with a HEPA filter, the kind you'd buy at you know a Home Depot or a Target or a Walmart or online. Yeah, but here's the uh, thing. But, little, but, yeah, but, here, but here's the thing, doctor. Uh, just to take, you know, Christmas talking like we're in a studio here. So, you know, I'm looking. We've got all kinds of stuff. We've got Purell. We've got Clorox. We've got Germex. We've got you name it. We've got all kinds of things to scrub surfaces. Uh, but for companies to come in and put in new ventilation systems and new filtering systems, that's a lot more money than getting a canister of wipes. Well, look, I mean, the reality is is that, uh, that it's important to wash your hands and do all that, but the majority of your exposure is coming through other means. So you're going to have to wear a mask. That's not expensive. 
And um, the recommendations we've been giving since February are not to go in and replace your system or spend millions of dollars on some new fancy control system. It's really getting down to the basics here. Your existing system can bring in more air than it's doing. You have a, you have a filter on the recirculated air. Get a better one. Uh, a portable air cleaner is $200. You guys should have one in your studio right now. So you know, I'm not talking about expensive multi-million dollar upgrades that are going to take many months. You could have your space performing a lot better uh, in the next 30 minutes if you wanted to. Plug in a portable air cleaner, wear some masks, uh, and get the ventilation going a bit better. So it does, it's a misnomer that this has to be expensive or time-consuming to fix, be it an office, school, dental office, uh, you name it. Dr. Joseph Allen, director of the uh, Healthy Buildings Program at Harvard's Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Allen, thank you. A new study confirms what health experts and doctors have been saying, that social distancing is effective when it comes to slowing the spread of the uh, virus. Researchers at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, they found that when people cut their visits to non-essential businesses, you know, like right in half, a single infected person transmitted the virus, ready for this, to almost 50% fewer people. That's a lot. That's a huge finding. Study author Dr. David Rubin discussed the results with KRLD in Dallas's Mitch Carr and what it could mean for schools reopening. You know, we've messaged masks, which I think can be an important barrier, but, you know, we've almost done it to the detriment of talking about distancing, about uh, limiting the size of your gatherings. If distance is the key, how much distance are we talking about? That comes from the knowledge of how uh, a lot of our respiratory viruses spread, uh, particularly as respiratory as larger respiratory droplets. I know there's been some data to suggest that uh, the coronavirus, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus that's involved here, can aerosolize and be in the air for hours. But in actuality, the attack rate within households mirrors what we see with other common respiratory viruses where most of those respiratory droplets will um, will drop to the ground within six feet of the individual if they call. And what about the schools? Many classrooms don't have the size to separate kids by six feet. That's why it was so important to try to get our positivity rates down extremely low um, so that the likelihood, you know, as, as school districts weighed these trade-offs, the likelihood that there would be a super spreader event within a school would go down. Um, but, you know, putting kids three feet apart, you know, packed into a classroom with a positivity rate of 15 percent or whatever it is there right now, or 10, 15 percent, is just going to fail. To me, the secret for these schools, these urban districts, was we needed to really degrade case counts. In some areas of Texas, we've seen some hints of that in Waco and in, in Austin, and I'm, I'm looking forward to our models this week. Then what kind of strategies can an urban school district think about when, when testing positivity rates are low? And if you still want to get the kids back in the school and the teachers and you can't do the six feet, what are the options? Well, you can add plexiglass between the teacher and the kids, that, you know, and assuming he or she is wearing a mask as well, too. Like, you know, Teach for America has got a big history down there in, in Texas. Uh, and there are other programs like Europe or using paid substitutes that might be co- college grads who don't have jobs right now. Uh, to assist teacher, older teachers in the classroom because, you know, they have to feel safe in order to get them back to school. The reality is there's got to be some confidence of safety. And so if you can't do the six feet, that's going to erode confidence in your teaching staff that they can go back to school safely. Well, if you substitute that with volunteers, allow them to have greater physical distance, um, or even teach online into the room with teaching assistants in the room, there are things you can do to um, provide that confidence to parents, to teachers, that you're trying to mitigate some of the risks of the classroom. 
The pandemic has been stressful for, well, for all of us. And there is so much bad news about it. And it is so easy for people to get obsessed. And we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast that, that uh, you know, we have to because we're, you know, well, we're in the news business and we're doing the, the podcast. But it's really difficult to tune out all this bad news that, that is just about 24-7. It is 24-7, and it's everywhere. It's on Twitter. It's on Facebook. It's on Instagram. It's either cat videos or <laughs> doom and coronavirus. Well, and, and in fact, there's a term now uh, for you know people kind of spending all their time doing all this stuff and, and looking for bad news about COVID. They actually call it Dooms scrolling, as in doomsday. Doom scrolling. I well, love there's that a term for, for everything. And Dr. <laughs> Melissa Hunt is the chief clinical psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania. She talked to KYW in Philadelphia's Charlotte Reese about why doom scrolling is so bad and how we can reverse the damage. In particular, in the era of COVID, following news stories that are not directly relevant or actionable to you and your choices in your community is just going to make you feel depressed and anxious and overwhelmed. And it's a really terrible idea. Well, I feel like that's everything that's going on right now, though. Mm -hmm. And um, I was reading, too, that both Facebook and Twitter are saying that there's more people than normal using their platforms during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. They recently Mm -hmm. put out some numbers. Twitter said uh, there's a 24% daily increase in the first quarter, and Facebook said they had a 27% increase. Why, why do you think people are being attracted to social media right now and this constant stream of information? Well, I think that it's sort of obvious that when people are stuck at home and can't get together with friends, they're going to try to reach out to stay feeling connected. So again, I think there are some very positive ways in which social media can be used during the lockdown to help us reach out and be connected. In fact, many people have talked about a sort of funny silver lining in the pandemic that they're reaching out to family, for example, more often. You know, I can personally attest that, you know, in the first couple of months of the pandemic, I spoke to my parents and my oldest son, you know, who live in other states far more often than I normally do. And it was actually quite lovely to be able to feel that sense of connection to people and not take those those relationships and those people for granted. So I think there are some very positive ways that the social media platforms have provided a way for people to stay connected in a time when we would otherwise be feeling very socially isolated. On the other hand, I also think that the state of the world right now is very uncertain. It's very frightening. There are lots of terrible things happening. And in situations of terrible uncertainty like this, it is very, very tempting. It is a natural human instinct to try to get information that will provide us with some sense of certainty and will inform our choices and our behavior in good and helpful ways. Unfortunately, the way that social media news feeds tend to work is that a lot of the news that you're going to see is actually not local. It's not particularly relevant. It's not necessarily directly actionable. And of course, one of the biggest problems with news obtained from social media is that it's not verified. 
and it's often false or deeply misleading or extremely polarizing or politically motivated. And so if people are going on social media to try to figure out, is it safe for me to go to a restaurant? Is it safe for me to fly a couple of hours to go see family or to take a vacation? Social media news feeds are really not the right place to try to get that information. Instead, what you're going to get is really scary stories about, you know, hospitals in other cities or death rates in, you know, another state that's very far away or lack of ventilators in Arizona. And that's just really not relevant to somebody in eastern Pennsylvania. <laughs> so it's not actionable. It's scary and upsetting and it will fuel the fire for wanting to try to find more information to get something that feels more certain or more reassuring. But it's actually not helpful. So my advice to all of my patients and to my students throughout all of this has been, if a news story is upsetting you and it is not local and it is not actionable, stop reading it. And really try to limit your news consumption 15, 20 minutes per day tops and make sure that what you're reading is accurate from a reputable source and is actionable for you in your life. Thank you very much for joining me today and talking with me about the pandemic and mental health. My pleasure. Take care. Now, we've known that uh, the coronavirus is deadly for people, clearly. But what we didn't know was that it can be deadly for some animals as well. Uh, Buddy Uh, A seven-year-old German shepherd from New York City got the virus and unfortunately never really recovered after a few months. His family had to make a very tough decision and ended up uh, putting him down. You know, and I said earlier that 151,000 Americans are dead and it's tragic, but Buddy's the one that really hit me. And I think it's because Buddy is a German shepherd and it's one, and we really got to learn his story, versus the 151,000, it's just a number you can't really rationalize. It just seems impossible that 151,000 people are dead. Buddy's the first known dog to die from the virus. Charles, you and Chris talked to Dr. John Howe, president of the American Veterinary Medical Association, about the dangers of the virus and your pets. Worldwide, you know, there's just been uh, very few, less than you know, less than 25 pets, domestic, you know, dogs or cats. There's been 12 dogs, 10 cats, and then, of course, the four lions at the Bronx Zoo and the three tigers. And cats uh, very rarely show any clinical signs, the cats that have had it. So the ones that do, it's a very mild case, and they get over it quite easily. The uh, lions and the tigers got it. Their, Their symptoms were a little bit worse, but they all fully recovered. And, of course, you can't compare lions and tigers to cats. They're different species. Even though they're in the feline family, they don't share all of the same diseases. Lions, tigers um, don't get canine distemper, and African lions do. So there's some diseases that they just don't share. And of the dogs that got it, there was only a couple that even possibly showed clinical signs, like poor Buddy and one other. It is easier to give it to cats in a laboratory basis, like in China, when they infected these cats with a super large amount of the virus. Then they showed clinical signs and they were sick for a short time, but all the cats recovered. So Buddy is the first one that actually got sick enough to die. 
but being he had probably that cancer spread into his liver and spleen and everywhere else, there's just no way to survive that. And that's possible. That's pr- most likely what he actually died from. Okay, lions and tigers aside, for for uh, dog owners, cat owners, things they can do to help protect their animals. And I, I take it it's, it's much the same as for for people. Watch your diet. What are some other things you might want to do to, to help protect your animal? So if you uh, exercise, of course, is extremely important for dogs. If you're going to go to a dog park, let's say, or you're going to walk your dog where lots of other dogs are being walked, don't let your dog jump up on somebody or let strange people come up and pet your dog. Uh, that's important. Maintain the social distancing that you would with people. Um, probably not let them go nose to nose with other dogs, although we really don't see cases where, where a dog has gotten it from in a family where the people have had it. It seems like it has not been spread to the other dogs. So it's pretty much human to dog, not even dog to dog, and certainly not dog to human. But just the normal, basic, common sense issues. Well, I, let me ask you about that, uh, about dog to human. I mean, is it just possible, you know, sometimes when you don't look for things, you don't know about things. I mean, is it is it possible that, uh, medically possible, that uh, someone's dog could contract it and, just as with some people, be somewhat asymptomatic and yet give it to a person? In the four million people that have gotten it worldwide, there's... There have been no reported cases of pets giving COVID-19 to people. So we're pretty pretty much uh, certain that that just doesn't happen. And, you know, one thing, too, the, of the positive cases in those dogs and cats, it's easy for a family member that has this virus when they cough or sneeze and dogs, you know, they go around, they lick everything up off the floor. It's easy for that dog to pick up the virus. And so... It, you can test the dog. You might find the virus in the back of his mouth. You might find it in the stool because the test is very sensitive. It'll pick up just a virus or two. But it doesn't mean the dog is actually infected or that the dog is infectious. So having the presence of the virus in the dog uh, doesn't mean that he's actually infected with the virus. Now, now, one thing I can't help but think that is that in a state like California, where we have so many people with coronavirus, many of them asymptomatic, you're home, you're quarantined, you're doing all the right things, but you've got a pet. You've got to quarantine yourself from that pet as well. It's ideal. We recommend that. You know, the, if you have somebody else in the family that can take care of the pet, that is a great, a great thing to do. So, and you don't want to be you know, hugging your pet, kissing your pet, things like that. Have your pet sleep in bed with you, you know, if at all possible. But you got to imagine there's how many tens of thousands of people with pets that have been sick with coronavirus and have not given it to their pet. So it's still a very, very slim chance, but it's still best to follow those measures. Or if you have a family member that can take care of the pet while you're sick is a, is a great thing to do too. And then to your back to being well again and maybe no clinical signs for a week, you know, then take your pet back. All right. Dr. John Howe, he is the president of the American Veterinary Medical Association. Dr. Howe, thank you. Scientists are racing for a vaccine and treatment for the virus, but you know, you know what there's no cure for? Conspiracy theories, hoaxes, and, and snake oil cures. Scientists say they're worried that all this bogus information on the Internet and elsewhere is just undermining efforts to slow the virus. President Trump retweeted, for example, a false video about an anti-malaria drug being a cure for the virus. 
And it was revealed that uh, Russian intelligence is spreading disinformation about the crisis through English language websites. Well, one hoax from the outbreak's early months claimed new 5G towers were spreading the virus through microwaves. And another popular story said that Microsoft founder Bill Gates plans to use COVID-19 vaccines to implant microchips in everyone. I mean, it's 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 really staggering the amount of there's so much information out there and and misinformation and disinformation that it is really difficult for people to figure out what's real and what's not real. Because it looks real. Because it looks real. It's under a real heading. It looks like real journalism. They look like real articles. And unfortunately, people don't have the time in their lives to do the due diligence to figure out which is right, which is wrong. And, you know, uh, I, look, I don't, I don't want to point fingers, White House, but there are some places that where information is coming out uh, that just is medically not true. Well, absolutely. But, you know, I guess people really just have to decide what the sources they trust are and just only go to them. When you see a source you've never heard of before, when you see a source that looks that it, like it's not true, assume it's not true. Just go to places you trust. You know, you can find this Radio.com original podcast and others on Radio.com and the Radio.com app. Apple, Apple Podcasts. Google Podcast and Stitcher. And be sure to hit the subscribe button so you can hear coronavirus daily, daily. And and one of the things that we will promise is we will never in this podcast, at least knowingly, pass on information that's false. Boy Scouts on. Right.